Welcome to the Sam Inshu podcast, where we talk to Sam Inshu's finest about martial arts, training, and life's smaller questions. In this conversation, we talk to Sensei Mariana Kaufman about her journey to empower women through martial arts. This conversation is brought to you by Impermanence, who wants to ask you is not impermanence the very fragrance of our days? On the Summing Shoe website, the profile, you mentioned that you are a volunteer docent in a Bremen a Jewish Heritage and Holocaust Museum. Yes, right? I have been for, um, when after I took an early retirement, I was a reference librarian for mm-hmm. 23 years. Mm-hmm. And after that, right soon after I finished, that was one of the things I knew I wanted to do mm. because I... In my last few years of working, I got a second master's degree Mm. in Jewish history and Holocaust history from Mm. Emory. And so um, I became a docent or a tour guide of this museum, especially Mm. in the Holocaust galleries. And um, I've been doing that. um, I think I began it is when I began training at uh, also about close to the same time, maybe uh, that I began training again uh, at um, at uh, Sungming Shu. Mm. So it's been was now it's been fifteen sixteen years that I've been doing that too. But I have a master's in this subject, mm. and um, and I have I lead uh, tours of everyone from you know, students from the fifth grade through the, through college, through um, homeschool students, Christian schools, Jewish schools, adult groups. And I would say I lead probably when the, when the museum has been open here, I would probably lead, um, there, you know, probably two or three tours a month uh, at the museum, sometimes one a week um, from September through the um, middle of May, mm-hmm. which is when the busy season is for schools. So, um, yeah, I, that's, that's something I've been doing. And I also, over at the Bremen since I do have this special degree in this, mm-hmm. um, I have also started after about a year of being a docent. I took the training, though I knew a lot of it already, but I had to learn how to relate to uh, children yeah. as far <laughs> as giving as far as giving talks mm-hmm. and involving them, mm-hmm. because it's often said that. You know, when you give a talk, uh, people remember 7% of what you say, but the sure. rest is how you say it and mm-hmm. and whether you relate to them or not and yeah. how involved they are. Mm. So I had to learn that, and that's what the um, six weeks or two or three months training was about as much as information. And then, but that after that, I also started a book group to read about the Holocaust, even though my thesis was in 
Holocaust studies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, um, and the book group was to read about the Holocaust and it's still going on. Mm-hmm. And it has been people who are, who are in it are Holocaust survivors, mm-hmm. children of Holocaust survivors, other people who are the docents or tour guides at the Bremen, Mm-hmm. and then other people who are members of the Bremen Museum. Mm-hmm. And um, so over the years, we meet nine times a year, not once a month for nine months of the year, mm-hmm. and we, ha- we pick a-, a book a month among us. I usually make the suggestion, but sometimes other people have suggestions too. And different people lead the groups. And um, so we've read you know well over a hundred books mm-hmm. now um about the an addition to my own training yeah so it's been a very very rewarding um project to lead nice. to, be, to be ahead of that and also to be a docent mm-hmm. this was a long answer to your question about that part of my no this this is good that's a lot of stuff i i actually can go into so so the books so so i have read a book uh victor franco a man's yes. search for meaning man's search so, for me yeah and that's a that's a great book for understanding like how to uh about the holocaust like what his experience and stuff like and how actually ultimately now how how do you deal with it stuff like that the and how, yeah and so, how do you turn negativity into positivity or how do you deal with adversity with people who have had such terrible adversity it's a very very important book yeah, yeah it is what what books do you recommend for people to read like what mm, do you so many of them you know i was thinking about that because one of your questions were what were the books that i recommend to people the most yeah you know, you know when we started this in november 2006 the first one all the way up and we read and the first book we read was a young boy's diary Mm -hmm. from one of the ghettos which was where the jews were packed in in europe um, prior to being murdered in concentration camps or death camps or mm-hmm. even in the ghettos mm-hmm. this was from a town called ludge spelled l-o-d-z and it was we had an exhibit at the bremen about the ludge ghetto mm-hmm. and this was called the diary of david sierra koviak mm-hmm. and this was his 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 diary what was left of it because ultimately he had to start using the papers to burn to keep the family warm, how he worked to keep his family alive, how he tried to, you know, he he knew many, by the time he was a teenager, 16 or 17, he knew like a half a dozen languages and he tried to get jobs helping tutor people and he was brilliant in math mm-hmm. and in sciences and he would try to tutor people or get jobs any helping other people anything to bring food to his mother and his sister yeah. so it's a it's a was a very touching powerful story that first mm-hmm. that first one and that was the first book that we read in this in this um book group because many people had read 
the book called The Diary of Anna Frank, yeah. which was about the young girl from Amsterdam. There are ones that have meant the most to me, but I don't know that they would mean the most to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a book by a man, and I just pulled it out because I have a lot of the books still at my house. This book called, um, it's called A Boy from Bustina mm-hmm. by, by his anglicized name is Andrew Burian. Mm-hmm. And it's a Holocaust memoir. We read a lots of memoirs, um, mm-hmm. but this is one of the best ones that I've read okay. in a while. Called "A Boy from Bustina," mm-hmm. uh, which I would recommend. It's the the the, the subtitle is "A Son mm-hmm. S O N A Survivor mm-hmm. A Witness," mm-hmm. and this was published by. Yad Vashem, which is the um, the publishing house and the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. There's one um, that I think that if people really wanted to understand something, and it's very relevant now because of COVID mm-hmm. and the incredible stories of the hospital workers and doctors, there was a story called uh, um, a memoir called by a woman who survived and she was a medical student mm-hmm. called I Remember Nothing More mm. the children the Warsaw Children's Hospital and the Jewish Resistance by Adina Bloody Schweiger spelled S Z W E I G E R and it's about being a young medical student at the hospital that they established in the Jewish hospital that they established when Jews were packed into the Warsaw Ghetto. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were the average, they, there were records that were kept by sociologists and historians that were buried so that they would survive since the people wouldn't survive. Mm-hmm. And the average apartments, two and three bedroom, two and three room apartments had 28 people in them. People were living on something like fewer than three or four hundred calories a day. You know, these are things that sociologists and nurses and historians and people who were trained to do that. But this that story was very, very memorable, too, and very applicable. Now, I remember nothing more Mm. Um, for me personally. Mm-hmm. The one, the one that seemed to, that made me um, being trained in martial arts. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained. Maybe we should come back to this book, mm-hmm. the book that means a lot to me because it has to do with my training. I trained for many years mm-hmm. when I was a young woman, and I taught full time mm-hmm. to classes to women for about nine years full-time when I was a young woman. And only after I then gave that up and became a reference librarian, went to graduate school in library science, and after I retired, did I start training again. Mm -hmm. But this book, I'll tell you, I'll come back to that. Yeah, So you mentioned in uh, you... The organization you study is the Karate for Women Atlanta, right? Yes. 
Yeah. So that why? Might, yeah. Why? Why did you? Why did you want to start? Start it? Okay. I um, when I was a very young woman, I trained um, the the husband of some friends uh, was teach would teach us in the park or at a neighborhood school. And then he no longer did that. We did that for about a year where we were training in a park and at a neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. And um, then, and also at a Y that was in a YWCA that was in downtown Atlanta. And he no longer would. And we joined a, uh, a dojo. Mm-hmm. And, and there were about, oh, six or eight of us women who did that. Mm. Um, it was all women, even though the, um, the one of the women's husband was our teacher for a while at the beginning. Well, we joined, joined this dojo and gradually all of the other people who I started with dropped out. Mm-hmm. But I began to like it. Mm-hmm. After about, you know, several years, I began to like doing that. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were this was in the early 1970s mm-hmm. and there were a lot of men who were very very nasty and hateful to women mm-hmm. and angry that women were studying martial arts and really? it was very dangerous for a woman wow. you could hurt get hurt very badly so they, and they so, don't they don't and want so me. after I got my um, black belt from that particular school, mm-hmm. I swore I would not go back to that school anymore. Wait, hold and on. You, you say that school, the people in that school actually don't want women to study karate? They, they did, but they, you know, they, there was a lot of anger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was not, and a lot of anger towards the women and a lot of, Hate, you could sense it. Really? You could sense it. I know. Yes. Wow. Yes. This was before yeah. the women's liberation movement in the United States mm. and before women were valued as equals. Mm-hmm. So after I had been doing this for several years at this school, after I was there for about five years before I got my black, my, my first black belt. Mm-hmm. And after about four years, I realized that what, what I wanted to do, because I saw, I could feel this, this, you know, put downs and dislike. And, and sometimes I could feel fear because there was such people yeah. were so angry towards about me doing this that I said, I want to start teaching classes to women. Mm. And so I found out about around, around this time in the uh, mid-1970s, mm-hmm. there had begun to grow up women's karate classes all over the United States, mm-hmm. in big cities, mm. in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. In New York City, there were three or four different schools in Boston, Massachusetts, in Chicago, in um, San Francisco. Um, so, 
and and other places along the east coast too in the triangle area of north carolina in florida in seattle so i found out about these people and um i would get tips from them and i began teaching not i, I also began teaching not only karate classes to women uh at in evenings and on weekends but i also began after a short period of time teaching short term self defense classes to women mm. and these ideas i got from other women instructors all around the united states what to include in a curriculum that was anywhere from uh usually 12 to 16 hours and how to present it so i would do a two day weekend course i would do um so a month long course with two evenings a week mm -hmm. i would do all different kinds of configurations of short term uh, self defense classes for women mm -hmm. and i did this i taught at emory oglethorpe agnes scott Spelman, Georgia State. Um I taught at Padilla. I taught at um a number of different uh YWCA's and recreation centers all around the city. Altogether in my evening classes and in my um short-term self-defense classes and my ongoing karate classes um I taught probably more than 2000 women over the nine over the over the nine years that I was teaching so trained, trained all together about 12 or 13 years while I was teaching that go round nice so how did you get students to how do you recruit people to study right yours from you right i would a lot of it was word of mouth people who took some of the classes i did my own publicity i put flyers up everywhere i put um i put uh this when i did teaching at the colleges the colleges let me give out flyers and then they reproduce them and they let their students know about them mm -hmm. um the women students i um so that was how um i taught um at places like Georgia State and Agnes Scott and um Oglethorpe I didn't teach but one uh semester of classes mm -hmm. uh, but some of the others they 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 would publicize it at those places and then um there was there's still is a women's bookstore in Atlanta called Caris C H A R I S mm -hmm. and they um they would um post flyers and would take telephone calls for me to so it was very nice and i um right. I, i did a lot of, a lot of publicity on my own and i gave people a phone number to call and then i would call them back and tell them about it more and that's the way they would sign up yeah so publish so where did you so you you put the flyers on books bookstores right is that and and i put them on on uh i put them in store windows and 
and I put them in freebie ads in newspapers uh, and uh, and then um, other people would tell one another because this was nobody else was teaching women and here at that by that time I was mostly well I started teaching classes to women before I was a black belt mm-hmm. when I was a what in the particular school I was in it was a red belt mm-hmm. but by the time I was teaching short-term classes in self-defense to women um, I had gotten my first black belt nice uh, what what style is that it was a Korean hard style called Tang Soo Do mm-hmm. which meant art of the knife hand though we oh. didn't particularly do more knife hand than other things. I see, I see. So do you, do you remember your first class, like first like class for karate for women in Atlanta, like your first group of students? That, how was it like? You know, I don't. Hmm. <laughs> I don't remember. I remember my first time at Sung Ming Shu. Hmm. That I do. When you're ready for that, I can tell you. Okay. That. All right. We will. So, yeah, because I'm just curious. I can, re- I can remember the first time to get the jobs at the universities. Mm. Um, I had to make appointments with the deans. Mm. And um, so I, I did that, mm. you know, and I made appointments with the deans mm-hmm. and they, and I was able to, they let me in. And mm-hmm. usually that was the way that I got doing to give the college gigs mm-hmm. to do the classes at college. I remember my first one. I went, this was 1974. I was still maybe 1975 because I was a black belt by then. Mm-hmm. Um, the first college that I went to, I had been teaching at neighborhood things and the, and the recreation centers would let me put up posters there a way of getting publicity in advance and they would take the my they would take the phone calls for me and register people because i was doing it as a favor for them at their recreation center bringing a whole new group of people in but i remember my first college interview was with at spelman college and it was with dean sadie allen Mm. And I told her, and she said yes. And because of her, I was uh, that I could teach classes there. And it was not through the physical education department. It was an extracurricular activity. But I ended up teaching like three short-term classes to people at Spelman, including faculty members, including staff, women staff, because it was a novelty to have a woman black belt teaching just women the things that women needed to know to not get beaten up mm-hmm. and not getting raped mm-hmm. and not getting murdered mm-hmm. you know so these were things that were important to me still mm-hmm. are yeah <laughs> you know so so anyway. yeah so how did you um so if you had only had one hour to teach women self-defense right how what would you teach during that one hour class I, I wouldn't teach a one-hour class. Oh, really? Why not? No, because that's not something. The only thing you could do in an hour class yeah. is teach people what to look for to avoid mm-hmm. 
that would be the main thing I would teach them. What are the signs that you might be in trouble? So how long was the ideal? The, 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 the classes were, uh, were usually a total of 12 hours mm -hmm. or 16 hours. And they were split up either, you know, for one month, mm -hmm. you know, uh, once a week for three hours, or it could be on a weekend, um, uh, six to eight hours one day and six to eight hours the next day. Or it could be if it was an afternoon, all different kinds of configurations. The biggest um, number of people that I did, I taught at Grady Memorial Hospital. I taught about 150 women over a period of a year and a half, um, short-term classes in self-defense on all three shifts. That there was a terrible situation that happened. So the hospital started interviewing. I found out about it. They started interviewing karate instructors. Mm. Somehow or another, I found out about it. And I... Um, spoke to the board of, I gave a presentation to the board of directors of the hospital, of Grady Memorial Hospital, and they decided they wanted to hire me to do my 12 to 16 hour course with women. Hmm. But they wanted me to do it after women got off work. Hmm. I knew that wasn't going to work. Hmm. So I told them I would not teach this course unless they let women off work during the day or during the night shift or during the evening shift so they could attend the class while they were at work. And getting, and getting paid for you too, right? And getting, getting paid for it also. They, they paid a nominal amount. Yeah. It was, they paid something like $15, which was closer to like $50 now mm -hmm. to do this. $15 was at the time, but still they paid that. Mm. But I had a, but they got, Grady made me sign. I ended up teaching 13 classes of women on both the day shift, the evening shift, and one shift at 11 to 7 at night mm. for, women, for women employees of Grady so that they could be protected. And but they made me sign a contract each time they would get up a class. And the problem was that you could only get like from say occupational therapy department at the hospital. Only one person could come at a time mm. from nursing on one floor. Only one person could come at a time nursing in a different floor. Only one person could come. So I had to get, you know, 10 to 15 people in a class and so it was a big organizing deal. And luckily, there was a woman who helped me at the hospital, mm. somebody who had taken my classes before. And so that's why I was able to teach over that year and a half, 150 women who finished these courses. Nice. It was a really, really big deal, too, on mm. all three shifts. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, you mentioned... 
so you so what do you teach in those classes in the self defense like do you you I'm assuming you don't teach katas, right? You just teach uh, maybe nice sparring, how to fight, nice nice boxing and stuff like that. No, you teach people what are the ways that a man would attack a woman. All the different uh, kinds of ways you uh, have to get into the other mindset mm. and think about what women know, need to know to what we need to know to protect ourselves. Mm. So you have to go into that mindset. Think of and then people, you want to make sure that people, many women prior to this most recent thing have a fear of being hit. Mm. So you need to also begin to introduce what it is like to be being hit and not fall apart. Yeah. You need to, to emphasize not just the things we do in martial arts, but the other weapons that are on the human body. Mm. Two, what are the things that you can use to defend yourself? And what are the situations? And the big thing is to get women to talk about the things that they are most afraid of. Mm. What are you most afraid of? And then begin. You don't have to do those all at once, but you have to keep in your head what are those and begin to deal with those. So it's not... And it may look a little bit like martial arts, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's very, very, it's a different mindset. Yeah, yeah. So it's not just about physical. So physically, you need to get used to like getting attacked, like beating someone, punching you or stuff like that. Maybe uh, and someone tried to grab mm -hmm. you from behind, you know, wrap their arms around you, getting used to it. So you don't, you don't freeze, right? You're actually going to do something, right? I think a lot of people are like, not used to it who are just going to, just freeze right so and then and then you mentioned i think you also mentioned like a mindset like how to think about what you're afraid of so it's not just physical it's also like mentally as well but you have to deal with those you have to you have to practice dealing with those situations that people yeah. talk about mm, okay nice so did you did you get a lot of support when you started like karate for women Atlanta from other people like, or did you just do it by yourself um there were one of the women who had uh trained with me uh, at the school where i ended up getting my, the first school where i got my first black belt uh, helped me a little bit there was another woman who had trained in seattle who moved to atlanta who helped a little bit but I, I would say mostly on my own. There was the bookstore that uh, took the telephone calls for me. There were people who helped, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice. So, um, so one thing I found like, on Emory's uh, website, it says your program, it describes your program, encourage like, weight training to build like, physical strength. So yes. how, how did the weight what, how did the weight training look like? like um, we did, there was a women's school in Boston, I'm sorry, in Washington called Jashendo. Mm -hmm. And they did, because women have, um, relatively speaking, um, weaker upper bodies than men do, yep. we used um, dumbbells based with, with, with um, three pound dumbbells. We did a series every single class in my karate for women class 
we did these 12 different exercises 20 times each. We built up to that for these people. Okay. And um, so that women could have uh, stronger upper body strength. We didn't go heavier than that mm -hmm. because if you go heavier weights, you slow the body down. Ah. And you don't want to, you don't want to slow the body down. That's for women. I don't know what it's like for men. Okay. I just yeah. know that. And, 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 and this is something that I have started doing again because I, um, I have to have in uh, two weeks, I have to have a total hip replacement mm. operation. I've started doing, um, and even before that, since my hip has been so bad and I can't walk but just a little tiny bit, not even a block, I started, I figured if my legs are so bad, my upper body better be strong. So I started doing all of those exercises again that I did 40 something years ago mm. with my classes. Nice. Because I got my first black belt September 5th, 1975, mm. which was 45 years ago this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's your, before you were even born, yeah. Shu. Before <laughs> you were born. Before wow. most people in the dojo were born. Mm, yeah. Is when I got my first black belt. So you got your black belt in uh, Onana style. So why did you want to study canoe in something shoe? Because uh, that means you can Over the years, yeah. That, while I was teaching women from 1974 to 1982, about nine uh, years or so, I also was training in other styles as well. Oh. Mm -hmm. I... Um, I trained, I, I had a, a second black belt from another instructor, mm. um, a man named Dick Terschel, who was, uh, people know him because he was friends with and, and, and had schools with uh, Chuck Norris later on. Oh, wow. But he, he, he lived in Forest Park and he, I trained with him for several years and he gave me a black belt. He, I, I took, you know, I was I received a black belt in his school, What's, and then I also, and then I also trained. It was a, a taekwondo like style, mm. and then I also trained um, for several years. And, and I had a training in uh, what was called the hanbo, the short bow, the short stick from. Um, uh, a one instructor and uh, who also was teaching my my women's classes to do that um this was the only time we had a man instructor do that gotcha. and then i had and then i trained uh in wing chun for um about two and a half or three years until my wrists gave out with mm. francis fong um mm. uh, at his school which was over by Ansley Mall. Um, he, he trains, he teaches in, I think, Cumming or Canton now, Canton, Georgia, or okay. Cumming, I forget which one. But he was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful instructor. Francis was, and this was in Wing Chun, so he was Sifu Fong. Mm. And um, I loved, I loved doing that. Mm. And I trained with him, as I say, 
maybe two and a half or three years, but my wrists um, yeah. gave out with yeah, that. Yeah, a lot of wrists. Yeah. 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 yeah, a lot of that. Yeah. But he was very good. He used to, he had, you know, wonderful herbal medicines and jars, and he would he would rub my wrists and, and do things to try to help me. He was so, such a wonderful, wonderful instructor. He was such a different kind of instructor from the men whom I had trained with originally uh, where I got my first black belt. Mm-hmm. It was like night and day. Mm. I, I, I really did love him. He was a wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. Nice. But then what happened was I, I, um, I was, um, I just wasn't making enough money to live on. And my, and I was uh, 38 years old mm-hmm. and, um, I, um, I just didn't think that I could do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. So um, my my partner and I both decided, my, who is now my wife, and I both decided we would go back and get degrees in library science because we both are great readers and are interested in libraries. And so I uh, went back to graduate school in library science. I was still teaching. And then I, um, after I got my degree, and then and I had some internships where I still was teaching, but the second, but the job that I had um, at the library required that I work every other weekend, every other Saturday, every third Sunday, and a rotating. Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday night. Mm. Well, I couldn't teach anymore mm. and do that. Wow. So that's when I gave up. I, I would still do some private lessons with people over the years, mm. with women, yeah. and I did over the years. And I taught, I, I taught some, I taught in Athens, Georgia. I taught at the, uh, for uh, women students there at the university. It, uh, and also through the Athens, Georgia, YWCA, mm-hmm. some weekend courses on weekends when I didn't have to either um, to work a Saturday or a Sunday. Mm. But it was very, very hard to keep on both training and teaching with this terrible schedule that I had to, in order to be a librarian. I, I'm not, I don't regret that at all. It was an excellent decision to become a librarian mm. and I you know and I um and I'm very uh, grateful that I was able to get that job you know and be a, li- a reference librarian so for that decision I uh, either giving up teaching like uh, self-defense and, 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 and training. how did you how did you make that decision uh, is it more financial or it was financial and also because of um, my body, you know, I was 38 and I had been doing this for 12 or 13 years. I had been training mm-hmm. and um, also teaching because, I, as I say, I always kept training while I was doing my own teaching, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I also would teach my students to be able to help me teach in any class because my 
classes were mixed classes, all different kinds of levels. Mm -hmm. And I would spend time teaching one group this, one group that. And then as the students who stayed with me longest learned more, they learned to be able to teach people too. Mm. So, you know, it was the principle, each one teach one. You yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's you know, not, I see. Yeah. So it's not, it's not athletes, right? When they, not, they compete, right? Olympics and stuff, and then they, well, well, at a certain point, they need to retire, right? And then do something else. So, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So I had, yeah, so it was physical and financial and thinking about the future, yeah. knowing that I could, that I was not somebody who could do this the rest of my life. It was, it was too um, yeah. taxing for me personally. Yeah. yeah. And I so, needed something that had no, uh, unlike people like uh, some of the, you know, people on the West Coast, like uh, Allison and Terry Oh, yeah. Terry Martino, who have their own schools mm -hmm. and who've been doing it for many years. I did not have my own school. Mm -hmm. I was using one recreation center for, um, for my evening classes. Mm -hmm. I was using different uh, Y and, and for my week. And, and I was using different YWCAs all around. I was using different churches. I was using different colleges. So I did not have an independent school where I had all of the teaching take place. Yeah. Do, do you understand? That yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So no, no, no studio, no one studio. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. that, that kind of made me curious. Now, uh, have you ever thought about starting your your own school? Like, never. No, no, never. You I never crossed. You never crossed your mind. Uh, well, I just knew that. I wanted to, when I was coming up along the way, I wanted the classes for women to be something that women could afford. Mm. And so I knew that women don't make near as much money as men. Mm. And I knew that uh, minority women make even less. And I wanted to be able to teach all different kinds of women. And so I made the fees that people paid me very little, mm. depend on, depending on what they made as to what they paid me. Mm. I see, I see. So I was just barely making a living myself, mm. but I knew that I had, a, I had skills that could help people not be beaten up, not be raped, and not be murdered. Yeah. So I wanted to share them, mm -hmm. but I knew I also was not a great businesswoman. I couldn't charge enough to make that people didn't have, women didn't have that much money yeah. to be able, many, many women at that time yeah. didn't have that much money to be able to spend on these. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, operating a business is another total different boss. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So when when did Samin Shu come to the picture? Samin Shu, after I retired, mm. um, I was I was a librarian for twenty three years. So there were about twenty of those years when I was not training or teaching. 
I also, I would try to run. I, run, I, I was a runner, though I was not a very good one. It was more recreational, you know, it was five miles, you know, that kind That's of thing. Yeah. But um, uh, after I retired, um, something had happened to me. I was carjacked. Oh. And I was, um, and it was very distressing to me. And I realized that um, this man was enormous. That I mean, he must have weighed 250 pounds or more. And he, all of a sudden, it was very, very fast, mm. this encounter where he grabbed the keys out of my hand. And I did all the things that I needed to do. I started yelling and saying what people did, but he ran away. He pushed me away from the car and stole the car. Mm. And I started yelling. I got people to follow him, all sorts of things. You know, I kept yelling and got people to help me. But I realized that it would be great if I knew martial arts again. Well, it turned out in my neighborhood, there was a man who was teaching Wing Chun mm. in my neighborhood. Now, it wouldn't have been the, you know, if, if I had had my druthers, I would have gone back to... Sifu Fong, mm -hmm. but he was out an hour and a half away in, I think it's either Canton, Georgia, or Cumming, Georgia, where he is. Anyway, so this man in our neighborhood was teaching um, Wing Chun. It was called Candle Park Mixed Martial Arts, and that was one of the things that he taught was Wing Chun. And he was a Sihang, he was not a Sifu. Mm. But he, I started going because I had retired. Mm. I took an early retirement from the library uh, after being a reference librarian for 23 years. Mm -hmm. And he, I started, I was 60 years old, <laughs> but I, um, uh, he said, fine. So when I started going five or six times a week, Mm -hmm. to the classes because I was retired, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you can do anything one you want. Things, right, right, could do anything I wanted. So he, and then all of a sudden, after a year, he said, I'm moving to Savannah. Oh. <laughs> and this was in the fall of, I think, 2005. Mm. And... Within two weeks, he was gone. Wow. What? <laughs> wow. And me doing five or six times a week when Chun. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. It's all about consistency, so, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I loved it. I just absolutely loved it. But it, he was not the greatest teacher mm. in the world. And he was a bit of a bully himself. Yeah. So I started shopping for a dojo looking for a dojo and I went to half a dozen places and then I went to the Sung Ming Shu Dojo on Elizabeth Street. Mm -hmm. I found out about when the classes were. I asked were there any day classes because I was training in the daytime which was great for me yeah. and they said yes we have day classes. So I went and I 
went one evening to watch the classes. And the first things that I saw when I went up the little stairways, there was a there were two signs. Mm -hmm. One said, leave your shoes uh, at the door and leave your ego at the door. Wow. <laughs> I loved that. <laughs> I loved that. We have that at our school. Mm -hmm. Leave your shoes and your ego at the door. Mm. And the second one was the person who helped me was Sensei Mark Gowan. Yeah. Who was a wonderful and still is a wonderful, wonderful sensei yeah. and who made me feel very, very welcome. Nice. So forget all of the other places that I trained, I mean, that I investigated mm -hmm. when, I, you know, and that's when I began uh, in, the, uh, in the, the fall of 2005. Nice. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, so you say the secret to our recruitment is to have the signs and also have Sensei Mark Gowan be there every single he day. Was, yes, I mean, I think many people now yeah. are very welcoming. Yeah. You know, I think he's a good influence. So that's your first day in uh, Samin Shu when you walk in, right? So do you remember your first day of training or first week of training? You know, I don't. I, that's something I remember what some of the day classes were like when I began the day classes. And um, since I, Jeremy was one of the teachers, um, there was a wonderful man who was, who's no longer there. Um, oh, since I, Maceo was one of the teachers. The day classes, since I, Doug was one of my teachers. Mm. And one one of the things that was very, very nice about Sensei Doug, he knew that I had trained a lot in Wing Chun, and he mm. told me not to forget that. Mm. Why? Why not? He just said, don't forget what you have learned. Oh, okay. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was good. I like it that he had that respect mm. for other martial arts, which is, of course, one of our philosophies, too. Mm. Sure. You know, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. he was, uh, you know, so that was a that was a nice thing to uh, to have him say that to me. You know? Yeah, yeah. So, what time was the day class? I don't remember the times. There were there were two day classes a week, uh, two day weekday classes, uh, and then there was also a Saturday day class. Hmm. So I would do those to start out. I went three times a week. Mm. Later on, <laughs> I took all of the classes <laughs> as I got stronger and better. And, you know, later on, I took every single class. Nice. I was training sometimes six or seven times a week. Wow. You know? <laughs> because so I was retired. I yeah. was retired. Yeah. You know? So one thing I've observed like, from martial arts, and that's, uh, in, in, when you reach certain rank, that's not as much women in the in martial arts right so but when i also when, when i teach like kids class i see like you know the, the it's almost like 50 50 boys and girls right but somehow as uh as they grow up at certain point uh 
girls tend to drop out. Do you know, I guess, uh, do you know any way? I have my theories. I have yeah. my theories. Do, do you know what, what can we do as a dojo to... I, I think one of the things that we can do, and it, it can't come from the, from the other women. Yeah. Yes. Not something that has to do with the high-ranking women. Yeah. It has to do with the men instructors. I see. Mm -hmm. The men instructors need to talk about how important it is for women to learn to yell. Mm. The men instructors need to say how important it is for women to be as strong as they can. Mm -hmm. The men instructors need to say you need to push yourself. You can do this. Mm -hmm. You can do it. Mm -hmm. I think the women need to be. And the other thing is, I think what we're doing with the teens classes yeah. before COVID is excellent. Yeah. Because, but I do think that the, it has to come from the men instructors that each of them needs to spend time thinking about how are they treating the men and the women differently. You can't just every time pair up girls with girls. Mm, yeah. You cannot every time pair up women with women. Mm -hmm. You have got to let people understand that they are the women, that they are capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. They can be, you know, they are not physically as big as men. Mm -hmm. They do not, we do not, women do not have the testosterone that yeah. men do, but you can be as skilled as you can. And I think it takes extra effort and extra thinking. Yeah. And especially about the yelling. Mm. I think that the men, I can say this to women a hundred times. It's not going to mean a thing from saying my saying it to students, mm. but the men need, the men instructors need to say, yell, Mm. as loud as you can. Don't mm. laugh. Nobody's going to laugh at you. This will save your life. This will save you from beaten, being beaten up. Mm. This will save you from being raped. Wow. Yelling as loud as you can. Telling people what you want, the attacker, what you want to do. Get out of my car. Get out of my apartment. Get out of my house. Yelling those things. The way we teach kids. Mm, you know, yeah. get away from me, mm. get your hands off me, all those things. Yeah, so, yeah, and that's a very good point, actually. I don't think, even when I teach, I don't even tell my people to yell. So that's a very good tip for, for me in the future. So, yeah, I think... Uh, I, would, I would strongly suggest it. Okay, teach okay. people to yell, and especially when you have girls and women, yeah. tell them, look... Lucy or look, uh, you know, whatever your name is, say to them, mm. you need to yell as loud as you can. Mm. This will save your life. This will keep you from being beaten up. This will keep you from being raped. Yell, practice it over and over. No one will make fun of you in this school for yelling as loud as you can. The people who yell the loudest will be the safest. Yeah, yeah. The yelling attracts attention. It gets other people to help you. The yelling says, I don't know this man. I need help. Mm. The yelling says, 
this is not a boyfriend beating me up or it is, I need help. This is not my father. This is not my boyfriend. This man is attacking me. Mm -hmm. So you need to tell people, yes, repeatedly practice yelling. Awesome. All right. All right. I will, I will do that. Yeah. Also yelling, you also, you know, give attack, uh, attacker a pause, right? You know, distract. Absolutely. Many reasons. I could give you another time, (laughs) another time. Not now. I could give you many reasons why yelling is valuable. Okay. All right. Sometime when we're not doing this. What do you recommend that when I teach, like, in the future, like, teaching kids, right, class, like, what should I do, like, to, you know, and maybe should I teach the girls differently? Like, what should I approach that to maybe uh, keep them stay in martial arts? Well, what I, what I just said, I mean, I think you should pair them up so that it's not always girls working with girls Mm -hmm. rotate Mm -hmm. so girls work with boys as well as other girls Mm -hmm. all of the time i think you should say to the girls you can do this Mm -hmm. you are very good you can be all of this takes is hard work Mm -hmm. okay tell them you know we had a woman head of school mm. and show them her picture. Mm-hmm. We have now Rachel mm-hmm. point her out to the people, to your, stu- to your girl students, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. point her out to your boy students too, mm-hmm. you know, let them know all of this takes is hard work mm. and doing it over and over and over again. Mm. That's how you get better in Kung Nu. Mm. But you need to show them the picture of Mary, Master Mary. Mm -hmm. You need to point out Rachel to them. You need to tell them about the other women instructors. Okay. Meg, Margaret, Mm. you know. You know, you just need to make sure they know that there are other women who do this mm-hmm. and the other girls who do it, like Cassidy, mm-hmm. and show them the picture of Rachel when she was the little girl. <laughs> you know, we have that. That's what you can do yeah, to yeah. encourage your girls. Mm-hmm. Don't pair them up with girls all the time. Rotate so that girls get to work with boys, boys get to work with boys, mm-hmm. girls get to work so that it's different pairings the way we do with the adult classes to wow. make sure they do everything that the, uh, you know, go Boy, ahead. Do. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. That's a really good advice. Actually. I actually, yeah, I really had no idea. I was just like oblivious to stuff right there. Right. Just like, yeah. So thank you for all these Definitely. good tips. Uh, so do you have a, like a past failure or failures that you have learned a lot from? That's a hard one, Shu. Yeah. I'll have to think. I thought about. I'm trying to think about that. No worries. You know, um, we can skip it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a, a saying from a woman um, who was an early suffragist, one of the women who in the United States who tried to get the right of women to vote. Yep. Um, and it was called said. Um, 
failure is impossible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't always think that, but sometimes I do. Yeah, that's good. That's very positive. And uh, also, I think right now, recently, I see like if you impossible is almost like I am possible, right? I'm possible. That's right? true. If you very start nice. it, arrange it differently, right? <laughs> so, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. good. So, um, do you have a like a quote or mantra that you live by? I have a saying that about my, my mother was a, an incredible person who when she was in her early 60s, um, mm. had to have uh, her leg amputated for cancer. Mm -hmm. um, she lived another 20-something uh, years after that. Yeah. But um, after she died, and she was very, she, I remember the day after she had her leg amputated, and it was just, it was way above the knee. She had just a little bit left of her leg. Yeah. And the day after she had her leg amputated, they turned her up on a tilt board. And here oh, she is, my mother, 60 years old, doing that, standing up with, with one leg. Oh, wow. So, um, my, but my mother was very uh, positive, and my, my wife came up with a, with a saying that... Uh, which was Marion, my mother's name was Marion, Marion Kaufman, you gave her something negative, she changed it to something positive. Oh, wow. Uh. So that has become my mantra. Mm -hmm. you, you give me something negative, I'm going to change it to something positive. Wow, yeah. So it's like the fate is, right? Uh, fate is. Not possible. Failure is impossible, and yeah. you give me something negative. My, I, I just used the image of my mother. Yeah, yeah. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah and that's, uh, is that, is she the most uh, influential person in your life? She and also my wife, Diana, okay. who I have been with for more than 48 years. Mm. Oh, wow. How has Diana influenced you? In what way? Um, she has been the person who helped me make all of the major decisions in my life. Mm -hmm. I and see. who has also encouraged me in whatever projects I have uh, chosen to undertake. Mm -hmm. Whether it was to get a mass, to get to become a uh, to train in martial arts, mm -hmm. uh, to get two black belts early in my life, mm -hmm. to um, go to uh, to go back to learn another language, mm -hmm. to go back to school to do that, to go to do graduate school in library science mm -hmm. to have the different jobs that I had within the library system to starting to train again to help me decide when to retire mm -hmm. to to take the different jobs I had within the library system mm -hmm. everything so wow. sounds like yeah. a sounds like a true partner absolutely 
so how so i'm so so i'm assuming that you sometimes you might you and diana might get into conflicts and stuff like that how do you resolve that conflict do you have any tips for like people <laughs> other people how to re- resolve I think that conflict? i think probably that's something that each mm. couple or each has to determine for themselves i, see, I, I think see. you have to listen mm-hmm. um Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, yeah, who, uh, you know, who just died, a wonderful, strong, determined woman, mm. said um, one of her sayings, uh, one of her many sayings was, in every marriage and in every relationship, meaning with her relationships with people on the Supreme Court, mm. it helps to be a little deaf. <laughs> Meaning you yeah. overlook certain things. Mm-hmm. You learn to overlook and accept things in people that may not be um, to Perfect. your liking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But are not so terrible that they can't be overlooked. I see. Okay. That's, that's good. That's good. <laughs> All right. And... Um, another question is, uh, what is your greatest struggle right now? I think for me right now, mm. um, other than the terrible political situation in our country, mm. the terrible health situation crisis in our country, you know, those are two huge things. And also the, the racism that exists in our country that has to be healed I think the big thing for me right now is the fact that for the past almost year and a half, I haven't, well, definitely a year, I haven't been able to walk Mm. um, just a little tiny bit around the house and that I'm a lot in pain. Mm -hmm. But I have finally figured out what's going on, though I tried every kind of thing before I finally found out uh, that I needed a hip replacement operation. Mm. So that's um, the health biggest issue other than those other three, which are pretty, pretty t- terrible yeah. right now. Yeah. So, with me. Oh, yeah. So I'm going to go back to uh, one thing that we talked about earlier. In, uh, you say you, uh, you study a master in, uh, in Jewish study, right? You got a master in, in history. In yeah, history. Yeah. And, and, and Holocaust studies also. Yeah, why, so, did you, why did you want to study that? I think it's always being a woman who was raised as a Jew and having distant family in both uh, Holland and Germany mm-hmm. who were murdered during that time. Some, at least 40 or 50 people, they were not immediate family. Mm-hmm. but people whom I have found out about over the years mm-hmm. who were murdered. Mm-hmm. And it was something that was an abiding interest in, to me. Mm. You know? oh, I see. Makes sense. Yeah. What did you study in college? In college, I studied English literature. English literature. Oh, nice. So <laughs> yeah. why did you want to study that? I don't know why. I was just I always like, I always like, 
people in my family always read a whole lot okay. and uh, were interested in literature. Mm. My mother was a, a an English teacher in high school. Mm -hmm. She read a lot. My father read a lot. Mm -hmm. And they read good things and uh, literature as well as, you know, newspapers and 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 good magazines and i was always very interested in literature so that's why i did it earlier you mentioned that you uh when you when you're doing a docent right you were in a docent as you uh and i still am yeah yeah except you, you, that the museum is closed now oh okay yeah yeah so you say uh uh you were talking to like you need to learn how to teach like how to talk to kids right how about the history so do you do you have any tips on how to do that now how do you how, how do you exactly what did you learn like uh, different ways of like sharing lessons with kids yeah well one of the things is you well it's different for from teaching in the dojo mm -hmm. it's very different because you're looking uh you're showing people an object mm -hmm. or they're looking at a picture or in a museum mm. and so you want to find out what they see and have them talk about it but you also want to share what you know mm. about it sometime when the museum opens again mm. you i will give you a tour okay awesome so yeah so you saying that talking to the kids is more like just that them have an interpretation of the picture that whatever they're seeing first, then you maybe supplement your... Absolutely. Sharing. Absolutely. Okay. Talking about one of the topics that I kind of very, I try to understand is Holocaust, right? It's very, of course, it's very big uh, topic to really talk about. I mean, it's hard to talk about, right? So uh, one, so how does the Holocaust has informed your view on a humanity in general right well i think i have to um i think that i have to um think about the people whom i have known over the years mm. who are the survivors holocaust survivors mm -hmm. at my museum who speak to to uh to the students and to the adults and they think that the more that people understand mm. that hatred of people who are different from you mm. is the wrong thing to do that we need to find the humanity in everyone mm -hmm. and that is that is important mm. and it is something that each of us has to strive to get. Mm -hmm. I don't think that people are necessarily born mm -hmm. with prejudices, but you develop them. Mm -hmm. And I think that they are something that people need to struggle with. Mm -hmm. um, if dislike of other people because of race or religion or age or physical disability, or sexual orientation, mm. that those things are, that hatred is like that is harmful. Mm. And it can lead to 
things like the Holocaust. Yeah, yeah. That's why you have to struggle against, and you have to fight against intolerance. Mm -hmm. You have to fight to have people see the humanity in one another, I think. Mm, okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I, I was doing some, just like, educating myself about Holocaust and the hatred, like, the hatred of, like, uh, basically Jews and, like, uh, basically Jewish people and, like, why, why, you know, where does the hatred came from, right? So it seems to, and it's based on my research a little, is like, the, the hatred is, is like have been around like for almost like thousands of years, right? And it's still here. And then I was like, is there any hope for, and for the new forms of hatred, like racism, you know, other kind of like bias, you know? Is there any? Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I think that it's not, I think education helps, but you also know that there were thousands of Nazi scientists, mm. you know? Mm. So I think it's not just education, but I think that can help. I think learning the history a little bit, I mean, we only spend at the museum one hour or one hour and a half with students and then they get to also hear a Holocaust survivor or a child of Holocaust survivors to speak. Mm -hmm. And I think those things help, mm. you know? Yeah. I think um, respecting other people because of race, mm -hmm. because of ethnicity, because of sexual orientation, mm -hmm. because of age, because of physical handicap. Mm -hmm. You know, I think those things are important. One, one of the things that I remember so much in, in my women's classes, I had a woman who was, um, had had polio as a child and she used leg braces and crutches. And she trained with me for like three or four years. Wow. And she was, we adapted all different kinds of things for her. Martial arts? We martial arts, we adapted for her to do them. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the most dangerous, because she had to use her crutches or her legs, she was one of the most dangerous people you could ever be around. Wow, yeah. <laughs> nice. and she knew it too. So, um how would you like to be remembered? I, I think just the, um, I guess just the people who, um, who know me and who uh, have been in my life, mm. um, for them to know that I have been um, a, a generous person and a strong woman. And somebody who cared about the people who are remembering me. Awesome. And what advice would you give your younger self? Awesome. Yeah. I don't know about that one. I can't. I can't really answer that. Okay. What about? I would, I would say physically to younger people. You know, push your body, but do not cause. Be learn to make a difference between good pain 
and bad pain mm. when you are training in martial arts because you do not, if you hurt yourself in martial arts, you can't train. Yeah. Mm. So you need to be careful the older you get and also if you start out being not athletic at all, if you start out being in bad shape physically, mm. if you start out being someone who has health problems, you have to go slower. And you can't listen. And the instructors need to say to people, push yourself, but do not hurt yourself. Mm. We have a lot of people who drop out because they've pushed themselves so hard that they have hurt, hurt themselves. Mm. Yeah, back to the philosophy you were talking about, reduce, right? So. Well, no, but that was for weight. That was just for weight. No, but this was for, well, maybe you can say reduce, yeah. but I would say listen to yourself. Mm -hmm. And I would say to our instructors, be mindful that, People coming in are not all athletic. Mm -hmm. They have physical limitations that they may be older and the body's more worn out or that they may want to do it so much that they will hurt themselves. They'll push them so hard that they'll hurt themselves. So it's up to, again, the instructors. <laughs> and this is for both men and women and children, no matter what age, mm. to say that to people. If I say to you to do something 20 times and you can only do it 10 without hurting yourself, that's all I want you to do. Mm. But next time, if you can do 11 or 12, I want you to do that. Push yourself. Don't necessarily listen to what I say. Right. If you do martial arts, we are all very competitive. Mm -hmm. but you have to remember to look out for yourself mm, yes. physically. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say to my younger self and to younger people too. That's good. That's good advice. Yeah, stay healthy. So um, I think you might have, last question, I, you might have answered this one already, kind of, but if you can put a word or message outside a dojo window for people driving by, what would it be? Okay, I wrote this one down, Shu. Uh, <laughs> and it would be more than just a word or two. It would be, it would a, be a message, yeah. It would be a banner that says, we will care about you no matter your race, age, gender, sexual orientation. Come try us out. All right, awesome. <laughs> we might put it up one day. <laughs> you never know. I, I, you know, I would see if I would get Jenna to, mm -hmm. who, who's so good at different kinds of things, or yeah. Carrie to make that banner. You remember mm -hmm. Carrie who does the sewing? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Thank you, Sensei Mariana, for your time and all the, the uh, tips you share with us. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you for doing this. And um, again, gang. <laughs>